0: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your
1: physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stratt, and This is the show where we discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. We're brought to you, Dr. Doctor, that is, by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. You can learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. You can live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Joining us
0: tonight and today, and whenever you're listening to this on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, will be a first-time guest, Dr. Tom Bouchard from up north in Canada. Uh, Dr. Bouchard is a family medicine physician who does a low-risk OB, and we're going where angels fear to tread because we're going to have three men talking about natural family planning and breastfeeding. Yes, roll your eyes. Please do it. But- Dr. Bouchard is a researcher, does basic research in natural family planning and breastfeeding and how they're related to each other. So we're going to talk about that. And so let's start with a softball question to our resident Dr. Dr. Obstetrician. What makes this topic of any possible interest to our listeners, Chris?
1: Well, hopefully we've got a lot of listeners for one but hopefully <laughs> of that big collection of listeners, we've got a lot of faithful Catholics that are not contracepting, uh, or uh, as they're approaching that question, they, they don't want to contracept. And you know, it, leading up to this point, and this point meaning maybe the last five to seven years, and uh, Dr. Burchard will help us understand that, it could be a little scary thinking about it, but the NFP world today is not your parents' NFP world. And, you know, the key is, you mentioned the word in your intro, Tom, research. Uh, And that's what we're going to learn about the science behind NFP, which is the power now behind NFP. There's so many methods, you know, whether it's the Marquette method or the couples to couples, symptothermic method or the Creighton fertility method, or, you know, it just goes on and on. They're all tremendous. They're all good for a certain group of people. And today they're all based in science and research. And so, you, you know, in answer to the question, why pay attention? Because now, more so I think than any other time, you don't have to go against your beliefs and church teaching if you have decided you want to avoid pregnancy. A married man and a woman can avoid pregnancy without mutilating their bodies, tying their tubes or having a vasectomy, or without taking harmful hormones and without contracepting. So you don't have to either be pregnant or, or not be intimate. Uh, a couple can be intimate, use NFP and not become pregnant. And relatively easily, they can accomplish that goal. Thanks to some of the work and the research that we're going to hear about tonight.
0: So Chris, one word, mucus. Yeah, <laughs> let it sink in. So we're going to be talking about mucus tonight and not the kind above the neck. So what is the role of cervical mucus and how is it affected by the hormones
1: of a woman's cycle? You know, Tom, this is like me asking you about skin molds. You know, this is, this is, this is my, my my favorite topic in the world, right? Cervical mucus. But it is so absolutely essential. So there's two kinds of mucus. One is estrogen-based. The other is progesterone-based. And the estrogen-based mucus is the special fertile mucus. It only exists for a short period of time. And our creator has designed this mucus that lines up in these nifty little tracks that are the perfect dimension to allow a sperm to swim through. And then as soon as progesterone comes after ovulation, those beautiful little escalators of mucus suddenly flip into a grid that doesn't <laughs> allow mucus through. I went to waffle. <laughs> right, it is exactly. It's a it's a biological valve that opens and then it rapidly closes. But mucus is the key for fertility, not only for what it does, but for what it represents. So low mucus could mean low estrogen. Well, that could be a follicle that's not working up to snuff, not a very good follicle, Uh, but also the body needs the mucus to transport the sperm from the vagina up into the cervix, up into the uterus. So mucus is the key, one of the key things of the fertility cycle. Very good. It doesn't get better than that, does it? Uh, you know, what, what can I say to that? Uh,
0: so in one of our guest's publications in the scientific literature, he has this paragraph, and I'm curious on your take on it. It says, at the end of a career developing oral contraceptive pills, the researcher Carl Gerassi wrote about the importance of research in NFP. He suggests that the measurement of urinary hormones at home could lead to a jet age in the understanding of a woman's fertility saying that the determination of when she is ovulating should be a routine item of personal health information to which she is entitled what do you think that the developer
1: of the original pill said that what does that mean to you chris it is remarkable i mean we'd have to ask him but i think what he is saying either intentionally or unintentionally is if we could figure out this progesterone test we wouldn't need oral contraceptives because in the body in the woman's reproductive cycle progesterone only appears after ovulation. Another way to say that is once progesterone has appeared, it means ovulation is over, and that means the opportunity for pregnancy is over until after the next menstrual period. So to the extent that we could quickly and inexpensively and reliably test progesterone at home, like a urine pregnancy test, once we can do that and be confident in it, it really is a game changer for couples that need that reassurance to say from this point until menses, we are safe, so to speak, from, uh, from pregnancy if that's what we want to do.
0: Wow. And final question, and, what do you most hope, hope to learn from our guest today,
1: Chris? Well, I think I and listeners, what, what we really need to know is if you think about it, for the average couple that is doing just fine any of the NFP methods generally work well and their temperament and their lifestyle may make one method uh, a little better than the other. Now, if they're having an infertility problem, one method might be better, but for the average couple really any method is, is generally good, but there are two really tough periods of time in in a couple's life. And that is right after a baby when the woman is breastfeeding and they want to avoid pregnancy that can wreak havoc on the cervical mucus. And it can wreak havoc on a young couple trying to figure this out. The other one is at the other end kind of of the reproductive lifespan. That's the perimenopausal woman who is thinking it would not be funny at 48 for me to be pregnant. I (laughs) I don't want that. Um, How do I use NFP to trust and avoid that? Well, those are the two areas where a lot of NFP methods here to date have really let couples down, in my opinion. And so I hope and I think that he's gonna share with us some really great information to try to work on those two specialty areas.
0: Well, we'll listen for that right after the medical trivia question of the day. Today's category, what else? Cervical Cervical mucus. Mucus, that's right, we got it. This is Chris's happy place. All right, so monitoring cervical mucus, as you know, is a part of uh, most forms of NFP. At times it can be more thin or more thick. It it changes. So the question is, what is the primary ingredient in cervical mucus? That's it. What's the primary ingredient? We'll have it for you at the end of the show, but right after this break on Dr. Doctor, we'll have Dr. Tom Bouchard on breastfeeding, NFP, etc. We're back now on screen, for those of you watching, with Dr. Thomas Bouchard. uh, Thomas, finished his undergraduate degree in Canada at McGill University, and then did three years of Parkinson's dementia research up in the University of Alberta. Uh, But then he did his family medicine residency after completing medical school at the University of Calgary. He now practices general family medicine as well as uh, low-risk OB. He's delivered about 500 babies over the last 10 years, and he's in charge of geriatric care at a couple nursing homes. But he's got a special interest in fertility medicine, and he's a consultant for the uh, Institute of Natural Family Planning at Marquette University on south of his border in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He's uh, a lecturer and perinatal palliative care uh, committee member at University of Calgary. He's published widely. Uh, his most recent initiative is developing an online platform for his own patients Uh and for fertility consults. And he was a recipient uh, eight years ago of the Lineker Quarterly Research Award. That's the uh, journal that the Catholic Medical Association publishes. Thomas, welcome to Dr. Doctor.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: So dementia research to fertility research, what happened?
2: So, well, I was, I was always fascinated from my high school days in neurology oh. and neurosurgery. <laughs> and then The life-changing event for me was uh, attending the first birth. So as a medical Mm. student, when I saw the first delivery, I was so awestruck by the drama of the delivery room that I knew I had to do something with (laughs) babies and I couldn't give up the babies or hand them off to somebody else. So I said, the only way I could do this is in family medicine. (laughs) So that was the first uh, romance with family medicine through uh, delivering babies. And then I did an elective in, in med school with uh, an OBGYN who was using just off-label the clear blue fertility monitor uh, in a reverse way instead of trying to achieve pregnancy he used it with couples he just kind of invented his own protocol to use it for avoiding pregnancy mm. so he and i wrote a paper when i was a medical student and in re- the process of writing that paper i discovered that the same thing was happening at marquette university with these nurses who invented the marquette oh. method so it was happening in parallel and they both came up with the same idea one guy from Canada, this group of nurses from Marquette. And God. so I that started my kind of correspondence with Richard Fearing and Mary Schneider okay. at Marquette. And I've been working with them ever since I joined them for a conference in uh, 2012. They were very gracious to kind of let me um, weigh in on, on some of their protocols.
1: <laughs> you know, before we get into the, you know, the really important stuff, um, I think a lot of listeners probably you're the only Canadian they've maybe have ever talked to. Uh, and we hear a lot about the Canadian health system, but you, a trusted resource, tell us maybe some of the differences between our two health systems. Yeah, I
2: think the, the biggest thing, and it, this relates to fertility consults, is because it's a single payer system, I'm able to see people for NFP consults regardless of their circumstances. So mm-hmm. I don't have to ask about insurance or anything else. I can do NFP consults and use any general family planning practice code and I can get paid for it. Right. So there's no question. Anybody can come and see me. They can self-refer, be referred by a doctor. Anybody can see me for NFP, which is great. Sure. The big drawback is efficiency and wait time. So you may have heard in Ontario, in the province of Ontario, Cold and flu season is backing up their hospital system. So that is a major drawback, the efficiency and wait times, whereas universality is kind of the major advantage.
1: Mm. Is it similar to maybe the British system? Do some people have uh, insurance, private type insurance that they might use for things that that the single-payer state system doesn't cover?
2: No, there's nothing like that. In fact, it's illegal to access private pay care, Um, and so people will cross provinces and they will pay for a surgery in another province because in their own province, it's illegal to pay for that procedure.
1: Interesting. Wow. Well, thank you you for that.
2: You can pay. That's right. It's a loophole.
1: Wow.
0: Bizarre. All right. (laughs) So let's, uh, go full force into this NFP thing. So one of the most challenging times to use it is after giving birth, uh, before, Uh, you know, the regular menses start again, especially women who are breastfeeding. So how often do women have actually ovulate before their first period after giving birth?
2: So overall, it's about two thirds of women who will have ovulation before their first period, which is why it's important that women understand in general that there's a high chance of ovulating before their first period. So not just to wait for that first period to think about whether they're fertile. And that number goes up the further postpartum they are. So when you get past 12 months postpartum, well, 90% of women are going to ovulate before their first period. Um, The average uh, return of fertility is between six and eight months, and that's because of the introduction of solids and suckling decreases.
0: So I understand it's easier to figure out when that first ovulation is if a woman is bottle feeding their baby instead of breastfeeding. Is that right? And if so, why?
2: Yeah. So th- the bottle feeding difference, if it's formula or express breast milk, the biggest thing is after the prolactin effects in the early postpartum period are, are no longer as relevant. The next biggest thing to suppress pituitary uh, hormone activity is suckling. So more suckling happens, the more FSH and LH have less effect on the ovary. So mm-hmm. suckling is the major driver of that delayed return of fertility.
1: Do you think or is there evidence for um, in third world countries where food is more scarce for the babies that, that women may exclusively breastfeed longer? Is breastfeeding more protective in those settings because of just what you said, the suckling?
2: Yeah, for sure. So exclusive breastfeeding for longer periods does delay the return of fertility longer. So mm-hmm. in a lot of uh, poor countries, the use of exclusive breastfeeding or another term for it is ecological breastfeeding, often delays the return of periods. And there has been some studies showing the differences in in different uh, countries in that regard.
1: Wow. Now, speaking of studies, way back before the pandemic hit in 2018, (laughs) you and some of your colleagues published a study about this relationship between mucus uh, and hormones in breastfeeding women. What were you going for in that study, and what did you learn?
2: Yeah, the, the driver of this was the and and this was the topic of uh, the the uh, Edmund Pellegrino Award that we worked on together. This study looked at cervical mucus to urinary hormone levels in breastfeeding women. And we were wanting to ask the question, uh, is it true that mucus can be confusing in the breastfeeding time? Because we had lots of anecdotal uh, evidence from women saying it's very hard to discern mucus uh, during the breastfeeding period. So because of that challenge, we wanted to look uh, at the urine hormone levels. And the, what we found was that the mucus was not correlated with the underlying urine hormone levels about uh, two-thirds of the time. So, so, that so means Thomas, that-
0: why do hormones end up in the urine? How are they trustworthy versus hormones in the blood?
2: Very good question. So, hormones in the urine are excreted through the kidneys. And the hormones in the urine are concentrated by the kidney. So because of that concentrating action, in some sense, the urine is a better reflection of hormones over time than a spot serum value.
0: Oh, very good. And what hormones are you looking at in the
2: urine? So in this particular study, they were looking at estrogen and progesterone. Um, in the, some of our more recent studies, like the clear blue monitor does estrogen and LH and the newer monitors, we, which we can get into later, they look at, uh, FSH, LH, estrogen and progesterone.
0: Oh my goodness. So when you say they didn't correlate with the mucus, do they normally correlate when you're normally, when you're cycling, when woman is yeah. cycling? And that, so what was different here? What didn't correlate?
2: So in, in a woman in regular cycles, this is why Billings and Creighton and symptothermal methods that have mucus as their base, they work well in regular cycles because uh, mucus is responsive to estrogen. So as estrogen goes up, there are very particular changes that lead mucus to having this peak quality that we would say. So clear, slippery, and stretchy is some wording that could be used to describe this. And women can sense this naturally. And if you ask them, they, they, they can learn to, to Uh, discern that mucus change over time. But in the breastfeeding period, because of the the effects on the pituitary and the the dampening of FSH and LH effects on the ovary, the same uh, mucus effects and sensitivity to estrogen don't produce the same mucus changes as, as what we would expect in regular cycles.
1: You know, it's probably obvious to some of our listeners and maybe not to others, but the reason we're talking about this is, you know, if you think it through from a very practical standpoint... You have a couple, they've had a baby, they don't want to be pregnant right away probably. They're breastfeeding and they want to use NFP. Yeah. And so they can feel completely lost, do I either risk it and become pregnant or do we avoid intimacy for the next you know year. Um, <laughs> arguably that's probably not the greatest thing for marriages but but it's a, it's a terrible dilemma. So yeah. all of this that you're talking about listeners, it's not just for some academic you know, uh, exercise, it's very, very practical, because this is such a challenge for couples.
2: Yeah, it's true. And the, the idea of uh, couples abstaining for months and months and months uh, can lead to frustration and and challenges uh, with the couple. So I feel um, obliged to help couples get back to their life of intimacy because it brings back the warmth in the home as one saint once put it, you know, <laughs> A saint, or is the church,
1: is the church yeah. teaches intimacies for both babies and bonding, not yeah. one over the other. <laughs> That's right. Very
0: good. So uh, now some methods use basal body temperature. Is that of no
2: benefit here? Does this add to the confusing mucus? It, it does. So basal body temperature uh, increases after ovulation. But remember, we're waiting for that one ovulation before the first period. So that's going to be a long time before it's beneficial. So um, when it comes to temperature, uh, the other thing is there could be disturbances. So a woman waking up multiple times a night to breastfeed her baby is a type of disturbance that makes Mm. it not a valid measurement the following morning.
1: You know, I said in our our introduction before you joined us that, at, at least in my mind, what's different today about NFP and maybe in our parents' or grandparents' generation is is really you, um, the science, the research. Uh, it's no longer something that should get eye rolls from professionals because this is science based, it's evidence based, it's yeah. research based. Um, but what are some of the, the technologies? You referenced uh, a particular kind of monitor. Walk us through some of the technologies that are making NFP better and easier to use today.
2: Yeah so this the clear blue monitor I mentioned before really was a game changer for the postpartum period and in fact 60% of people who use the Marquette method are breastfeeding folks mm-hmm. what they do is they they realize probably after baby number 2 that oh this didn't work Uh, So most users come with baby, you know, wanting to delay timing with baby number three, and they come to the Marquette method because last time the mucus did not, didn't work. That's a common story.
0: So what is the Marquette method? Okay. You guys may know what it is. I haven't got the clue as to what it is.
2: So, so Marquette was, um, was developed by uh, some nurses at Marquette University and the, these nurses were initially working with the Creighton method, and what they realized was that they, they needed additional tools. And because those tools weren't easily fit into the standardized approach that Creighton used, um, they decided to do a spin-off, spinoff uh, creating this new method called the Marquette method, which has as, as its base the use of a urine fertility monitor. Oh. So the Clear Blue Monitor tests for estrogen and LH in the urine, and so women will Do a a dipstick test in the morning that they plug into a a monitor. And this monitor actually um, gives a low, high, or peak value. High meaning estrogen has gone up, and peak meaning LH has surged. So the monitor gives this objective sign of hormones in the urine. And it gives uh, more, you you could say, uh, reliable testing to give to people who are wanting uh, something more objective rather than just a subjective sign in the mucus.
1: And I I think it's fair to say, too, it's a proactive piece of evidence. You know,
2: the
1: the body temperature shift is driving down the interstate looking in the rearview mirror. That's right. It's already already (laughs)
2: happening. But
1: the the Marquette method allows you a forward-looking, something is about to happen. That's right. You know, beware. That's right. <laughs> now, exactly. in the interest of transparency, we don't have a relationship with the maker of Clear Blue. That's just a brand. Yeah. Um, but are are there competitors in the market space for that monitor, or is that the only company producing yeah,
2: it? Yeah. It, so there's a whole bunch of LH test strips, really cheap dollar store type test sticks you can get for LH, which will predict ovulation within a few days. But th- those little, those uh, cheaper test sticks don't have the estrogen assay so clear blue has been the market leader in this area for about 20 to 25 years but in the last few years there are some new quantitative monitors um, and one of them is the, the main focus of my phd research which is the Mira monitor and the Mira monitor also has test sticks but these test sticks instead of giving low high and peak they give actual values of the hormones so that's going to be a game changer when people can actually see the those hormonal curves in real time day to day is it's going to really revolutionize how we use this for nfp
1: and when you say that i'm assuming that you mean it's going to make this task easier and more reliable so the couple can really trust the data and be very specific about when to be intimate or when not to be intimate depending on if they want to achieve or avoid
2: yeah exactly right and the the challenge when you're looking at data is uh, user-friendliness, and both these monitors are user-friendly. But the other thing is simplicity of use. So Marquette translated uh, using the ClearBlue monitor into some simple instructions for the method. When you get more data, like numbers, then you get run into the challenge of complexity. How do we turn that complexity into something more simplified? And so what our goal is going to be over the next few years is starting to, to recruit people for research studies to say, Let's create an algorithm for NFP using this new quantitative monitor so that it, instead of having this complex data set that we, we leave to women to interpret, we want to give them the tools and thresholds that will help them plan accordingly.
0: So how now, did your 2021 study address these two different monitors, Thomas?
2: So that study, we basically compared ClearBlue and Mira side, side by side. And we said, let's use the thing that we know well, the ClearBlue monitor, and let's compare it to the thing that's new. And so what we showed in that 2021 study was that Mira and Clearblue Blue agreed really well. Uh, but Mira did pick up on some sub-threshold peak levels where some women have lower LH values that wouldn't go past the threshold for Clear Blue to give a peak, but it still gave you a number. So that woman with the sub-threshold values, we were able to say, oh, look, you ovulated. That would have been missed on Clear Blue. Uh.
1: Nice. So it really does step up the game, you might say. Yeah, yeah it does. Well, I'd be interested, particularly since you're a Canadian researcher, Research in America is largely pharmaceutical company funded now, yeah. um, more so, I think, than any time in our history. But why, why isn't the academic world just overflowing with <laughs> research and reproductive hormones and, and these new technologies? Why not? If I were a much younger man, that's what I would be doing, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think what I, what I would like to do over the course of my PhD studies is really start uh, stepping up the approach to uh, looking for grant funding, finding mm-hmm. the language that is attractive to a secular audience to see that this is something that people want. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's not just something that we want to ideologically drive, because the NFP world is a small subset, but there's, I think there's a, a, an interest and a demand for it. There's over 2,000 apps for the menstrual cycle out there. So there's a huge demand for menstrual cycle monitoring, right? Wow. And so if this is the case, let's capitalize on that and try to get into that market, that interest, and, and try to show them the goodness of monitoring the menstrual cycle for any type of intention, And I think that will require kind of shifting the language. Um, NFP is a historical term that has been used for many years. Um, But sometimes I'll use the term menstrual cycle monitoring or try Mm. to shift the terms. You know, you've probably heard of fertility awareness-based methods. Sure, the CDC
1: likes to use that one. Yeah,
2: so there's all kinds of different terms, but these terms collect baggage over time. So I think we have to really think about language and how we can uh, really be, uh, uh, attractive to a secular audience so that we're not bogged down by biases that people might have
0: and that Thomas, no, that's really is fascinating.
2: Great,
0: it is fascinating. And it's actually a great place to take a break here on Dr. Doctor, Doctor before we come up with more fascinating tidbits about natural family planning or menstrual cycle monitoring. Yes
1: welcome back to Dr. Doctor and our very special guest in this episode Dr. Thomas Bouchard from our our friends to the north in Canada so Thomas what's the deal with progesterone why has progesterone sort of been the holy grail and the NFP world what's the big deal
2: well the biggest thing is identifying the when ovulation has occurred so we talked about temperature before so Temperature shifts uh, after ovulation. So that increase in temperature can be a nice way of saying, yes, ovulation has happened. But temperature does come with some challenges. If there was a disturbance Mm -hmm. or an illness recently, then it's not valid. So progesterone is that test that allows us to ignore some of those circumstances that affect temperature because it's present in the urine. So uh, progesterone tests are a way of confirming that ovulation has happened. And that way you can say that you've entered into the infertile phase after ovulation.
1: Now, in America, a progesterone test, a serum, a blood progesterone test is north of $100. Yeah. So maybe we should talk a little bit about cost. The Clear Blue versus the new monitor. What's that look like for, for users?
2: Yeah. So Clear Blue costs about $200. And most of the other monitors on the market also cost about $200. I usually offer patients to write them a letter so they can put it on a health spending account, mm-hmm. along with test sticks. Test sticks range anywhere from a dollar to three to four dollars each, and so you want to minimize as much as possible the cost of test sticks. So if they if people can can keep it to maybe ten to fifteen test sticks a month, you are probably mm-hmm. looking at uh, you know forty to fifty dollars per month, and mm-hmm. hopefully with some health spending account that can offset the costs. But that is certainly uh, a consideration that uh, the, the initial expense of the monitor, although those can last years, the monthly cost is there too. So uh, the reality is that most people would make this investment. It's cheaper than, you know, a birth control pill, for example. Sure. Um, sure. So I think people want to make that investment because they see the value there.
1: So now, how, how, is- about, how about the new progesterone inclusive monitor?
2: Yeah, so that one's also $200 um the the Mira monitor is uh the test sticks are a bit more expensive there's two other well three other systems one called uva which just measures uh lh and progesterone Uh, and then there's another one called anito that's now in the united states market and there's another one a system called prove the anito and mira monitors are ones that have a little device that you put a test stick into. The Prove system is all uh, test sticks and they're line-based. So you have to read the line and there's an app to read the line. I would say the Prove tests, P-R-O-O-V, um, those are the cheaper of all these options for testing. Uh, the, the Mira monitor uh, is, has, has more data to back it up and is the one that we published on last year.
0: So Thomas, uh, to be clear on price, women aren't going to be using this every single month. They're mainly going to be using it around the challenging times until their cycles are normal. Would that be fair to say?
2: That, that's a possibility. So I, I think what we need to find as, as physicians and healthcare providers uh, to support couples is the method that works best for them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And rather than trying to fit them into the method say, what tools does this couple need to be successful and to achieve their goals? So sometimes that means, say, in the postpartum period, they use a fertility monitor to test their urine. Um, Maybe they get back into regular cycles. Their mucus is so obvious, and this happens. Lots of my patients will say, I went back to Creighton or I went back to Billings because things were very clear, like clockwork. And I say, that's great, go for it. Um, But then they might come back and say, you know what, things are not so obvious. So then we use another tool like the monitor, right? So you have to find the tools that are going to fit with the couple, not try to fit the couple into the method, you know?
0: So two times, which I think are very challenging for women, I'd like you to address here. One, women undergoing chemotherapy. And two, um, women in that uh, perimenopausal period just before their cycles stop. How can you help them?
2: Yeah, so chemotherapy is a a brand new area uh, of interest because prior to this, uh, there was uh, no option for women who were trying to figure out what's going on with their fertility during chemo and immediately post-chemo. The reason for this is hormones. uh, the hormones change in such a way that there's pituitary dysfunction from the chemotherapeutic agents uh, usually for, say, breast or ovarian cancer, and these uh, hormonally active chemotherapeutic agents are not going to allow you to see any, any discernible thing in the, urine, uh, in the mucus because of what we talked about with the postpartum period. The same thing will happen with the chemo med. Now, with the clear blue monitor, all you get is low, high, and peak, so you can't see any variability in what's happening with the estrogen or LH or, say, progesterone. We've had a few cases now that uh, we looked at that, who are on chemotherapy, and we were able to see a really elegant pattern where the pituitary dysfunction was so obvious with LH being sustained high. You don't see that in normal cycles. LH is usually surges up really high when they have their ovulation, goes right back down. But this woman with chem- on chemotherapy had high LH consistently, very low estrogen consistently. When she came off the chemo, LH went down, estrogen went up. And she was able to ovulate. And so you couldn't find that without a quantitative monitor. This is the first time that it's ever been demonstrated in chemo that that you could kind of identify fertility changes in the hormones with chemotherapy. So I did an interview with um, the organization Natural Womanhood. And they were asking, they're a kind of a pro-NFP group. And they were asking about how, how this would work. And could other women be potentially use this so we started a case series and we're opening it up for people to to kind of contact us and and we can guide them through the process what was interesting is there was a couple in france who got in touch with me because she's on chemo and wanted to to use this approach the way she found out about it was that there was a monk at a monastery in southern france who read the natural womanhood article and this this i was i was so amazed to hear this this monastery of monks support nfp users in southern france and they this monk came up to this couple and said this there's this doctor in canada who who has done something with chemotherapy you should get in touch with them so the grapevine is what it is i got in touch with them and i I speak french so i was able to help them and they're now using this method during chemo so it's actually a really nice opportunity to help couples through a very difficult time in their lives dealing with chemo and, and cancer um, to still have that warmth of intimacy in their relationship, you know?
1: Without the fear of an unintended pregnancy.
2: Exactly. Yeah.
1: That's well, terrific. Well,
0: the other time is the perimenopausal. That's one of the two things Chris really wanted to learn in this episode. What help have you <laughs> got for that women who, woman who's on the path to menopause?
2: to because I'll up tell you, in my,
1: practice, in my practice, I think the postpartum breastfeeding couples are frustrated. Yeah. Um, but the perimenopausal couples – it's it's not as funny. It's not as comical. They, they do not. They want to be open to life, at the same time they do not intend to become pregnant at forty eight or forty nine. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about that group a bit.
2: Yeah. So that that's uh, also another set uh, case series that we're working on right now, following perimenopausal women through the different um, kind of straw criteria, you know, the different uh, stages of the premenopausal transition, and these transition phases, you can usually talk about variability in the menstrual cycle. But right now, we don't have the actual hormone data to say what's happening during these variable periods that women are having. So the first thing that I'll I'll tell women is usually the, the cycle lengths shorten, and then they start to lengthen and become more irregular. And then you start to drop periods, they become uh, longer, much longer, then eventually over 12 months, you're going to not have any periods. And that's what we call menopause. So during that transition, that could be many years, what we want to show with these quantitative hormones is what's what's going on. Um, It's probably it's it's likely that FSH starts to go up, maybe it wanes, waxes and wanes a bit. And and likely the pattern is as FSH wanes, estrogen goes up, And then, as estrogen goes down, FSH goes up again. So, there's going to be a unique pattern in the perimenopause that we'll be able to follow. And with likely a very low ovarian reserve in the 40s or late 40s, what we want to know is what are the thresholds we can recommend to women uh, with these quantitative hormones to tell them this is something, this is a phase you can consider infertile. This is where you need to be worried about fertility uh, and you could be ovulating sometime soon that you can catch it early. So it's that predictive value that we're looking for. Right now, we don't have the data to say, this is our plan, this is our protocol for these quantitative monitors in the perimenopause. That hopefully will come in the next year or so.
1: So listeners, if you're in that group, help is on the way, stay tuned. Yeah. Are you recruiting for that study?
2: Yeah, we are. Currently, we're doing it through uh, uses of the Marquette method. They'll learn the Marquette method first and then uh, we would uh, tell them how to get a mirror monitor and using these test sticks, they'll be able to show their their hormones in the urine and then we'll retrospectively look at that data with the hopes of planning a a later study, a larger study that is prospectively collected.
0: So if there's a listener who is perimenopausal and is interested in this, could they contact you?
2: Yeah, what I would suggest is they go through Uh, the website nfp.marquette.edu. So that's kind of the the collector um, for anybody who's interested in the Marquette method. And if they get in touch with the nurses at Marquette, then we can get them started through that process.
0: So right now, what's the best you have to offer for women who are perimenopausal until this test strip data comes out?
2: So right now we do have a protocol for the perimenopause with the clear blue monitor. Mm -hmm. And there's one published study on that topic. It's the only NFP study in the perimenopause that I'm aware of. So they can use the clear blue monitor um, and they can use it for uh, basically trying to track when it goes from low to high and then they avoid pregnancy. And then they wait until they can find a peak, which is the sign of ovulation happening. So, that particular protocol, they can still use the Marquette method for using the Clear Blue monitor. But what we'll, we'll have is way more detail and kind of a refined approach with the quantitative monitors.
0: There's another fascinating study that you uh, sent to us, and there were people concerned that COVID vaccinations might affect the menstrual cycle. And that spurred some interest in you. What happened with you there?
2: Yeah. So when I was in my family practice clinic, I had a lot of women coming to ask me about the vaccine and is this going to affect their menstrual cycles? This was a huge topic through the pandemic. So many people were asking me that question. And I thought, you know what? We we have to study this issue. We have women all over North America collecting data, uh, users of the Marquette Method, So we decided to uh, explore this with a retrospective survey where we decided to ask women to uh, provide their chart data for us and tell us when they received the vaccine. And that allowed us to determine whether there were any menstrual cycle changes. We asked them for charts three months before they received the vaccine and three months after the vaccine to see whether we could find a change before or after. So this is called a repeated measures design. We use the woman as her own control. So her pre-vaccine data is her control for her post-vaccine data.
0: So it sounds like the strongest type of study you could do to get to that answer.
2: Yeah. So the downside with it is just the sample size. We, we had about just over 70 women participate. Um, if you look at other larger studies, uh, there was a study with uh, an app called Natural Cycles and another study with the Apple Women's Health Group that's done through the Harvard scientists, they have massive data sets of cycles, um, and they they have um, some a little bit of period data, but their main data is cycle length. So they were able to show in these very large studies, we're talking tens of thousands of people in both studies, that cycle length increased by about half a day. So that's not clinically meaningful. I don't know any woman who could say, oh my cycle was half a day shorter or longer than last month. Nobody could tell that with that level of detail. So this is a type of statistical significance, but non-clinical significance in those studies. They didn't find any other changes. We also didn't find any changes either, um, but we didn't have the power in our study with a small sample size to detect that very tiny difference in cycle length. So basically we found no major difference in menstrual cycle.
1: It's interesting, it's at the risk of creating conspiracy theories, we don't need anymore. more. But uh, in, in my circles, in the obstetrical world, it sure feels like a few obstetrical complications that used to be not so common have become commonplace. Yeah. Postpartum hemorrhage and hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, we're all talking about this feels like it's orders of magnitude more prevalent than it used to be. Yeah. I, I mean it may be a decade or more, I guess, before we have the look back data to understand did infection during pregnancy cause something? But are you hearing any discussions of of those topics?
2: Yeah. And we addressed this in, in the study, and there's a few things to consider. One is confirmation bias. Yeah. So confirmation bias is when you expect a certain thing. And it comes true just because you want it to come true. So <laughs> that's that's a major problem in um, kind of that retrospective look at things where yeah. you look back and you think it must have been this thing, especially because of the time course of when things happened, you know. So confirmation bias was one of the biggest challenges with anecdotal reports. The other thing is isolating the variables. So, um, when people say this or that thing happened to their period, it's not like we shouldn't believe them. Um, it's that we can't attribute the change specifically to the vaccine. There's all kinds of other things that are happening in, in a woman or a family's life around the time of vaccine. They may be anxious about getting the vaccine. Um, they may have had some side effects that that uh, worried them. They there may be other things going on in their family. They're homeschooling. They brought their kids home from from school and they were had all the kids at home, whatever the, the factors were involved, what we did with our study was isolate vaccine as the variable and say, even if there were changes subjectively or somebody looking back at the changes, those changes cannot be attributed based on our results to the sure. vaccine itself. There may have been other disturbances, but the vaccine was not the disturbance that caused the problem.
0: One other question you wanted to address before we're done in about three minutes here. How can couples navigate between the various methods of NFP without it seeming like a turf war? Great question you propose, we ask you.
2: (laughs) Yeah, this is one of my pet peeves in the NFP world. It's such a small world (laughs) that I really hate the infighting that can happen between methods. So I think we need to be uh, what I would call NFP universalists, really allow the couple (laughs) to guide our management and say, What is the right tool for this couple? What do they need in this moment? I don't want them to think the only way forward is the thing that I'm recommending. I want it to be right for them. So that's the first thing. And then we should also avoid arbitrary criticisms of other methods, you know, thinking, you know, I'm I'm the Marquette guy, so I don't deal with anybody who does Creighton or something like that. The COVID study we did with the couple to couple league. So we combined data with Marquette and couple to couple league folks. That was a really nice opportunity to work collaboratively. So um, when there are, you know, scientific merits or criticisms for one method or another, I think we should be willing to be objective about those and and honestly discuss them, but not do it in a way that um, puts down or or kind of suggests there's only one approach and my approach is the best, you know.
1: Mm. That's well said. It makes me think of some of the horrible fights I've seen in the pro-life community sort of a big circle and everyone's shooting at each other yeah when we should all be on the same team. Yeah that, that's really well said thank you.
0: So Thomas, as we wrap up this episode, what do you want people to know and what sources of information will you recommend to them that they may not know about?
2: Well, um, I think there are lots of different organizations to turn to. Uh, there's the Institute of Natural Family Planning at Marquette. Uh, Dr. Marguerite Dwayne's has something called FACTS, where they train medical students to learn about NFP. Uh, the Couple to Couple League has just started the Fertility Science Institute. Uh, so all of these organizations deserve support, and they often operate on shoestring budgets. So, you know, anybody who has the funds to support these organizations should. Um, and, and that's, you know, while we work on grants and mainstreaming some of this NFP research, we, we need to support them as well.
0: Well, Thomas, thank you so much for being a fan of Dr. Doctor. You came up and met Andrew <laughs> Molali and me in Denver. We loved meeting you. And thank you for being an awesome guest. We hope that when you have more uh, data to share from your research, you'll be back on the show.
2: You bet. I would love to.
1: More than that, we hope that we hear stories about you convincing 10 or 20 more people to become you.
2: Uh, <laughs> that would be nice. Okay. We certainly need a lot more uh, a lot more NFT research. So God bless you and God bless your work. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it.
1: Welcome back to Doctor Doctor, and welcome to the answer to this episode's trivia question, which involves what could it not involve? Cervical mucus. There's just nothing more interesting and exciting to me than that. Uh, and so, Tom, you posed a great question. Sometimes it's thick and stretchy. Sometimes it's not. But what's the primary ingredient, so to speak, uh, in cervical mucus? And so, for those of you who thought about the makeup of the human body and guessed water,
0: you're absolutely uh, right. 90 to well 95%. I mean, I guess it's like jello, right? I mean, jello's kind of thick, but it's it's over 95% water. I don't know how they do it. And there's all these things called glycoproteins and glycosylated proteins and mucins and don't worry about it. It's mostly water. It's just these little extra additives that change.
1: You know, something I mentioned earlier in the episode about the fertile mucus at the time yes. of ovulation lines up in these little tunnels. Yes. Um and wouldn't you know, just by happenstance, that the, the tail of the sperm, of the flagella, they don't whip side to side like a shark's tail. Oh. They rotate in a circle. Oh. And our friends in, in physics and hemodynamics and flow dynamics engineers will, will tell you that the most effective way to propel something through a tunnel is with a circular tail. Uh, isn't that amazing? It is. It's hard. It's hard not to see the hand of our creator in that. No, not at all. So, Chris, <laughs> three top
0: takeaways
1: from Thomas. Well, as usual with a hard guest, it's hard to come up with with only three things. I, I think he was really fascinating, and he does represent, I think, what we talked about in the intro, and that is the new NFP um, right. that that is rigorous research um, driven with great science behind it. It's it's not your grandparents NFP, <laughs> but you know, for the top three, I love that statement that he made about method wars and that, you know, um, not every method is right for everyone. The method right. should be driven by the couple and their special needs and their values. And I always like to say a couple picks an NFP method based on how motivated they are to avoid pregnancy or not. Um, the second thing is um, that we talked about those two special categories, the perimenopausal years, And those women who are undergoing or who have undergone chemotherapy, really, I think the the takeaway of that is help is on the way. Uh, It's coming. It's going to get better. um, And they're doing some really great work there. Uh, And then last, I think it'd be impossible not to mention the COVID corollary. Um, And that is, you know, their their real study of real patients uh, looking at kind of that that, uh, urban legend that maybe uh, COVID changed menstrual cycles. They've got pretty good data that says, actually, no, uh, they weren't changed at all. So thanks, Chris. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for
0: another um, stunning episode, at least from our guest point of view. He was wonderful. Of Dr. Doctor. If you want to listen to old episodes, you can find them, drdoctor.org. And you can go under episode archive and search over 290 episodes by guest or topic.
1: And we can come to you via video if you'd like. Uh, If you'll just look on our page on the YouTube link near the top of the page at drdoctor.org, click on that and you can watch any episode that's available in video. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question or a comment or an idea for an episode, click on submit a question, let us know what you think. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org.